This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Mark Oppenheimer writes the regular beliefs column for the New York Times and also reports for The Atlantic, The Nation, This American Life, and other major media. He has a doctorate in American religious history from Yale and directs the Yale Journalism Initiative. He is also the host of a new podcast, Unorthodox, on Jewish religious issues. Mark Oppenheimer, welcome to Thinking in Public. So, Mark, tell me, what exactly were you up to with this op-ed piece that ran right after the Obergefell decision calling for an end to tax exemptions for religious institutions? There's so many other things I want to talk to you about, but that, that's kind of the one thing we got to talk about before we get to anything else. Right. That's, that's, the, that's my new calling card. That's the one that's made me famous of late. Um, so the first thing, of course, is, as you know, because you've read it, uh, it's not a piece specifically about religious institutions. Uh, it's not a piece specifically about conservative or traditional religious institutions. It's about nonprofit institutions, um, of which religious institutions make up some significant percentage, but I don't know that they make up the majority. I don't know that anyone has studied whether or not they do. Um, but it's about nonprofits in America. And really what I was doing was taking the Obergefell decision as an opportunity to make a point that I've long thought deeply about, uh, which, although not as deeply as I've been forced to think about it <laughs> since my piece came out and was pretty widely uh, circulated and attacked, um, w- which is just that um, all tax exemptions are, of course, um, uh, loop. You know, depending on whom you talk to, an exemption is either an exemption or it's a loophole. And all uh, every time you tinker with the tax code and give a break to one person or one body, somebody else has to pick up the slack. Somebody else has to pay. In my own city of New Haven, we have an enormous amount of tax-exempt property. Most of it is uh, educational or, um, or medical, uh, Yale University, hospitals, and so forth, but some of it is, uh, is religious. And the fact that all of it is off the tax rolls in a very, very poor city means, uh, well, it helps keep us poor. And, um, and of course, it jacks up the, the taxes on uh, the poor and middle-class people like myself uh, who live here. So uh, really what I wanted to do was just to keep in perspective that this is not just some unalloyed uh, good or some just uh, harmless little fill-up in the tax code that we give to help promote the separation of church and state. It's something with real consequences, and it's, it's also quite regressive in whom it hits. It's a very interesting argument. Of course, you did get a great deal of attention, some of it from me, immediately after this, uh, this article appeared. And and the timing, uh, before we even get to the substance of the argument, let me just ask you a question kind of behind the curtain of of how this happened. Sure. Uh, The Obergefell decision was handed down, and and within hours of of that decision, your piece arrived at Time Magazine's website with the headline, Now is the Time to End Tax Exemptions for Religious Institutions. Now, your argument is broader than that, but was this a, a, a coincidence of timing? Or, or, or Tell us behind the curtain here, what, what actually happened in uh, terms of the timing of your article? Sure. Well, one thing that writers do, and I imagine you do it as well as someone who writes a lot for, um, you know, for the public square, is that you pay attention to current events, and when something comes up that you kind of makes you want to shout or scream or uh, softly coo into the public's ear, you... Uh, you draft something and you send it off to an editor who you think might be interested. And in this case, I don't think it was within, within hours. I think it was a day later, maybe even two days later. But, but I certainly don't ever write anything within hours. I'm not that fast. Um, 
I read the news and I had a point of view on it that I thought would be interesting, that I thought maybe not everyone would say. And I sent a one or two sentence pitch uh, to the editor at time.com slash ideas, their online idea section, and said, would this interest you? And he wrote back and said, yeah, sounds pretty good. If you write it and, uh, and we like it, we'll run it. So I wrote it, sent it off, I think, you know, that evening or the next day. He wrote back, said, good deal. We'll give you, I don't know if they gave me 300 bucks, something like that. Nothing, nothing that's going to pay for my kids' <laughs> college or, you know, or their summer camps even. And, and they ran it. Uh, writers, of course, don't write our own headlines. Um, you know, I thought that was an unobjectionable one, but it certainly wasn't uh, the perfect one because it, it didn't quite capture what the piece was about. But I think it was a good one, and I'm willing to stand by it. Uh, so that's what happened. Well, I tried to explain to uh, the listeners of the briefing that, indeed, writers don't choose headlines. And uh, I can see why a copy editor at Time would have done this, because they're looking for attention, and the headline certainly got attention. But as I went back and looked at your article, it is interesting that, uh, that you, you do identify from the very beginning the fact that the religious exemption is in the center of your concern. And, and not to read your work back to you, but you said, first, the religious exemption has forced the IRS to decide what's a religion— and thus has entangled church and state in the worst way. It's an interesting argument, but it, it is clear that uh, the, the religious exemption is not peripheral to your concern about nonprofits. No, not at all peripheral. Uh, you know, it, it so happens that I, because I care about um, the independence of religion in America, because I've devoted my life to writing about religious institutions in all of their diversity, uh, which is something I treasure about the United States, uh, the independence of my own religious congregation where I'm active is something I treasure and, and has enriched my life uh, to no end. Uh, because I treasure this aspect of, of religious life in America, and I think we're uh, pretty well unique in, in the world, or one of very few countries where r- religions, uh, religious bodies have that kind of freedom, I think it has to be safeguarded at all costs. And I think that uh, the that asking for special treatment from the IRS, asking for an exemption, is actually a bad idea for religious freedom because, of course, it opens up uh, the door for the IRS to come in and investigate whether or not you are, in fact, a religion. So two things, you know, there are two choices when you have thousands and thousands of religious organizations asking and for tax exemptions, right? Number one, either the IRS can make a fairly regular habit of querying you and asking to look at your books and visiting your, your worship services and trying to figure out if you are, in fact, a bona fide religion. So that's number one. They don't do that, right? But that would be one possibility, and that would be undesirable. The other possibility is that they don't. They're completely hands-off, and it opens up the door to a lot of fraud and a lot of uh, tax sheltering of non-religious activities, uh, either by organizations that are partly religious but do a lot of non-religious things or send some of their money to enrich uh, pastors or vendors or what have you, um, or by organizations that are entirely fraudulent. And there's probably more of that than we'd like. And that, of course, undermines respect for religion. It gives a lot of ammunition to the ultra-secularists who think that religion is just you know, a big shell game, which I don't think it is. So I, I think that you have two undesirable things that can happen when you create this loophole in the tax code. Yeah, and it's an interesting uh, way to present it. I would simply say that the, the one thing worse than either of those two alternatives is where we'd be left if, if your argument were to prevail, because that leaves us with government actually taxing religious organizations, which, which is British common law understood even a couple of centuries ago, actually more than that. Uh, that actually puts the church in the position of paying for the state and subsidizing the state's interests. And, uh, I, I am not an Anabaptist, uh, but uh, this does bring out my Anabaptist instincts uh, when it comes to uh, 
to, to what that would mean. And, and, and well, what, what would it yeah. mean? I mean, what, what, would it, what would it mean if all of a sudden Southern Baptist Theological Seminary had to pay whatever the, the property tax mill rate is in your hometown of half a percent or one percent or whatever? You, know, you just switched the ground a little bit there because you're talking about property tax. Well, Absolutely, you were about and the it's IRS interesting that early. you assume I'm yeah. not. And I'm curious yeah. why you assume I'm not because, of course, property taxation is really what most of us think about when we say tax exemption. If you want to talk about tax deductions on the federal income tax, that's even more problematic. But um, Well, you but mentioned think, the IRS. That's why I, I jumped into it. I, I've made the case, and in, in, in my book coming out shortly, I make the case profoundly that the, the issue is more likely to affect uh, churches at the property tax, or, or you mentioned the institution I lead, it, it would be a very significant uh, financial uh, adjustment, let me put it that way, uh, if we were to pay uh, property tax. But but it, it, it goes back to the fact that uh, local governments have generally paid deference to the IRS, especially since the development of IRS uh, 501c3 status uh, in terms of that designation. So Well, n- n- here's what's happened. Um, so there are two parts of the tax code, and I'm glad you There are two things we're talking about here, and they're very different. I'm glad you brought it up. And my piece could have been better if it had made this distinction more clearly. Number one is that when federal income tax law was developed in the 1910s, I think between about 1913 and 1919, with several federal acts, they carved out as one of the ways that you could make a deduction from your income tax uh, donations to nonprofit organizations, right? And that law has you know, been, become cluttered and changed and streamlined and cluttered again over the years, but it's fundamentally stayed the same, which is you can write off of your tax liability uh, the amount of income you gave charitably to, to nonprofits, right? So that's one piece. The other piece is, of course, that if you call, if you say that a building is used for um, nonprofit purposes, you can take it off the local and state tax rolls. So they're both very, very different. Um, I think that people who want to defend this loophole have to defend both of them. And uh, almost nobody Granted. in attacking my piece was interested in really understanding these complexities. Well, some of us are pretty involved in them and have been writing and speaking about them for some time. And, and, and that's why your article got my attention in a way that something that came from, frankly, someone else and uh, that landed somewhere else other than uh, Time magazine w- would have had less of my attention. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll simply say that there, there's so much to this, and, and I divide my concerns between the principial and the pragmatic. And uh, at the principial level, I, I think the deference to nonprofits in general and specifically to, uh, to churches and religious institutions is, is very important to preserving religious liberty. Uh, and, and on the, the pragmatic side, I'll simply say that the, the issues are really profound simply because wealthy institutions will survive and financially marginal or weaker institutions would not. Then you, you also have the reality that, you know, you, you are, have been long associated with Yale uh, presumably, under the loss of tax exemption to nonprofits, Yale would lose it. What about the University of Connecticut? Uh, what, what, how, how, would you, uh, how would you adjudicate that? Right. Well, there is, of course, a kind of intrinsic absurdity to a state entity like the University of Connecticut or the University of Tennessee paying taxes to the state, which then it would give right back to the, <laughs> to the, um, to the university. And that, that gets a bit more complicated, and, and I don't pretend to um, have – every answer for, uh, you know, every piece of this question. I think, obviously, we're talking about tax exemptions. We're not talking about um, state actors being exempt from state taxes. I mean, it, it doesn't make much sense for the state capital building to pay taxes to the state coffers. Um, I think we're obviously talking, uh, if we're going to be serious here, about private institutions. I would back up and say, I mean, this is how muddled the thinking is. And I, I don't mean to attack you specifically, but I think the field of thinking about this is so skewed by self-interest and so underdeveloped. You said the rich institutions would, do a, would survive, but the marginal ones would, would be hit hard. 
Um, of course, Al, the, the poorest ones, your, let's take your typical storefront Pentecostal church in a heavily Latino or black neighborhood, they don't have any tax liability. They're probably renting the building, which means that there's no property tax liability for them. And their members, who are likely in many cases, most of them below the poverty line, are not the kind of people who itemize their tax deductions. So the $10 or the $5 they put in the hat on Sunday is nothing they're writing off. They're probably taking the standard deduction if they even have, if, if they even have to file income taxes. So really what we're talking about is sort of uh, middle-class churches that have to worry about this. It's actually not the poor. The poor are hurt by this because these are people whose taxes go up in other ways to help fund Yale or Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, I, I think there's actually a lot more to it than that. I want to talk about other issues, but just on this for a moment, uh, you know, what m- is at the center of my concern would be, uh, for instance, an evangelical institution that's trying to survive in Manhattan, uh, because it, it, it might be marginally surviving now, but if it had to pay property taxes uh, or, or even by rent uh, in terms of how that might work out, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's going to be very very much an impact, and it, it will lead to the collapse of many religious institutions and congregations. Well, no question, right, there would be a kind of flattening out and balkanization of the religious landscape. I don't think it would be evangelical institutions. I think if you look at something like King's College, uh, you know, which is renting, are they still in the Empire State Building? No, they're, uh, they're now down on Wall Street, that, which makes okay, your point but, a little bit even more profoundly. <laughs> but they're probably still renting. Uh, you know, the people who'd be hit hardest would actually be the old mainline Protestant churches on Fifth Avenue with very dwindling memberships. If you look at, like, Madison Avenue Baptist, or if you look at, at you know, the Reformed Temple Congregation Emmanuel on Fifth Avenue, these old mainline congregations uh, that are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of square footage, um, the, their footprint is so valuable right now. Um, so, yes, I mean, there's, there would be losers in this. But, again, I mean, if we're going to be serious religious people, we would want to know, we truly in our hearts want to know how much of the tax burden are we offloading onto the poor and middle class in order to pay for these tax loopholes. Yeah, and there, there's, an, of course, a lot more to that, too, in terms of what uh, mediating institutions, to use Peter Berger's term, are actually doing to alleviate these problems even before they reach the, the, the tax rolls. But I, I'd like to move to a larger issue, if I may. That, that, was, that, was, the, uh, that was a catalyst for our conversation, but frankly... Uh, I, I'm, I'm really interested in broadening that, but, but using this as indeed a touch point to ask you, uh, as, uh, as one who writes regularly for the New York Times, you're, uh, you're at Yale University at the, uh, the Journalism Institute, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you have a, a very unique vantage point uh, from which to answer the question I'm about to ask you. Just okay. how much trouble are evangelicals and evangelical institutions and, uh, and those that are now outside the, the new moral mainstream, just how much trouble are we in? It uh, doesn't seem to me that you're in much trouble at all. Maybe, maybe you should tell me what, you're, what trouble you see. I think you're being just a bit coy there, because you, you understand that, uh, and I haven't read everything you've ever written, but I've, I've read a good deal of it, and uh, appreciate your, uh, your, your writing style and, and the thoughtfulness you bring even uh, to, to pieces when we disagree. Thank you. But uh, there is there has been a vast change in the cultural landscape. And uh, so we, we've gone from Will Herberg's statement in the middle of the 20th century, Protestant Catholic Jew, uh, really shaping the culture in a dominant way to where it's clear that uh, at least the institutions that uh, that represent conservative Christianity in America are, uh, are, are in a very displaced situation. And uh, I, I don't think your article is, uh, is accidental uh, in, uh, in identifying specifically 
those who disagree with the Supreme Court decision as being in a position that uh, that that does imply uh, a different okay. cultural okay. situation. Well, let's separate out two things. Like number one, you know, um, while of course I like probably the rest of us, you know, share the vice of aspiring to you know unlimited power <laughs> and craving omnipotence. Um, you know, I'm actually, you know, my column was pretty marginal. It, it, it would have reached almost nobody but for um, conservative direct mail marketers and, and right-wing bloggers and polemicists uh, giving an enormous uh, echo chamber. Um, you know, there are op-ed columnists who actually can move the needle, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman and Paul Krugman and David Brooks and some colleagues at the Times. Um, I, I'm not one of them. And um, so I don't, I don't see this as my piece as any sort of harbinger in terms of the policymaking direction of our country. What's more, I would add that as far as I know, there are, liter- there are a total of zero politicians uh, out, you know, in Congress or at the state level who have called for anything like what I proposed. And in fact, since 1983, when in the Bob Jones case, the Supreme Court opened up a little window to challenge tax-exempt status of institutions that were in some way running afoul of, of national norms um, in how they treated minorities or, or women, for example, I think there's been it's literally been used zero times. So nobody, for example, has has tried to strip the Roman Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Convention of any sort of tax-exempt status because they aren't ordaining women. I know some Southern Baptist churches may, but um, you know, but but that in, you could say, well, that's sex discrimination. But nobody seems to think so. And literally, everyone in the country is letting everyone go on and and do their business. So you know, at the purely pragmatic level, I generally agree with you, Mark. I mean, I, I do not believe this is what is is going to come first. I, I think there are many other issues that will come long before uh, any politician has the uh, <clears throat> the political will to, uh, to 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 call for and and to pay the political price for that kind of uh, of major uh, a renovation to the tax code. And by the way, I, I I don't think Stanford University and Yale are any real danger taking the religious issues completely off the table. Uh, I know how much Palo Alto would love to have Stanford University paying taxes, but it, it's going to be hard to to uh, to believe that Stanford's going to lack the political clout to hold that off. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think I didn't answer. Let me. I'll quickly answer the the what you were really getting at, which is the loss of centrality in the discourse of um, traditional Judeo-Christian thought, and I think that's real. Um, I think that it's, these things are cyclical. I mean, I think the 80s was a very comfortable time to be an evangelical Christian or a conservative Jew or a traditionalist Roman Catholic. I think the younger generation today is, um, you know, people in their 30s, let's say, are not there as much as people in their 30s were in 1984. I mean, you would know this better than anyone. Um, so, but look, you know, the one thing I guess I want to end on before I, you know, see this conversation back to your your question, I, I apologize for interrupting there, is that, um, you know, nobody feels more oppressed than atheists. I mean, they still look at the polls that say that Americans would rather have a left-handed Muslim lesbian president than ever vote for an atheist. So it, it's, this all depends on where you're sitting, right? Right, and, and that's why I, I asked the, the question uh, in, in an in, in intentional way there, uh, ju- just to elicit a response. I, I, I think that conservative Christians have to be very careful about the language of oppression and, uh, and persecution. Um, but I think we also have to understand the, the changed terrain, I, and, and that's where uh, I, I do think uh, you're in a unique position to kind of speak to that. Uh, you know, e- e- even in terms of uh, of the cultural uh, ambitions of the so-called religious right and all that, you know, the young people who, who are in training at the at the school I lead, they don't even remember that. Uh, that, that that's how that's how different the world right. is now. Right. Uh, and and I, I 
I think one of the great gifts you could give to uh, to the the listeners of, the, of this program would be to kind of describe where you think we stand, just in terms right. of the larger culture. What 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 do we look like? Uh, I'm very wary of those kind of. I'm not I'm not someone who comes up with broad sweeping theories of these things, but I'll because because you've been so good to me over the years and always given my writing a fair hearing. <laughs> I'll do my best. I think there's some of what is it Christian Smith who talks about moralistic therapeutic deism. It is. Uh, you know, I think there's some of that. The idea that people believe in some vague God who wants us to do good, uh, but ultimately isn't going to make any demands of us that we don't feel comfortable with. I think there's a lot of that out there. There's there's a rise of a kind of generalized uh, spirituality. So I don't. So for example, I don't see the organized atheism growing much. I mean, they're starting with such low numbers, you know, in the single digits that they they will grow a lot. You know, they could triple from 4% to 8% or whatever, but they're not going to be a major force. I think that America is a great place to be a spiritual seeker and yearner. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I never believed there was such thing as the Christian right. I always thought that there were just Republicans who from time to time put a Christian gloss on the way they were voting. And I was never uh, – I never peddled in uh, end-of-the-world liberal theorizing about how the Christian right wanted to take over – uh, an institute of theocracy. Um, I thought that that kind of, you know, I think actually Ralph Reed wanted people to believe there was something like that. I mean, there were people who made good livings out of claiming that they were marshalling Christian voters in a certain way, but, you know, the South was trending Republican for a long time, and it kept doing it. And, um, you know, where, where are the promise keepers today? Um, so I, th- I always thought that was a bit of a mirage. Um, I think we're headed towards a real deinstitutionalization of things. I think that, you know, what's been happening to Roman Catholic churches and Jewish congregations for a long time now seems to be happening to Southern Baptist churches. And, of course, the United Methodists are well on their way. I mean, I think the, the, the traditional church building is a lot, a lot more of them are going to be closing, and people are going to be finding newer and different forms. That's my, that's my best guess. Yeah. Now, you, you've written thoughtfully on people like Charles Taylor and uh, his understanding of a secular age. H- how do you describe this uh, it, just in terms of the larger reality in the society? Are we looking at a new secular age, or is that a false generalization? Um, you know, my concern with, you know, with, with Taylor and some of his followers when they write about secularization is that they often link it to rationalism. And while I would love to think that we're getting you know, uh, in, in some good ways, uh, more rationalist in the ways that we ought to. For example, you know, putting more faith in the best science, whether it's regards to, you know, how man evolved or climate change or, you know, uh, bioethics. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that we are. I don't think we're heading toward any sort of scientific age. Um, but I do think that um, we're heading toward an age of, of almost too much skepticism. I mean, I think that the same kind of skepticism that some people, that I see some people bring to organized religion, they then bring to the question of whether they should vaccinate their children. So they've, they've taken skepticism and turned it into stupidity. And uh, I think that one thing you could say about a somewhat older order, maybe the Will Herberg order that you talked a little bit about, was that there, there seemed to be better guardrails. Um, people seem to be maybe a little less likely to go off into some cult, a little less likely to go off into anti-vaccination fears or conspiracy theorizing. Um, I see things getting pretty wild. I don't think that's quite what Taylor has in mind, um, but I see it as, as a kind of libertarian and libertine age that we may be entering. 
But in terms of uh, of the work you do, and uh, you know, you're you're in a unique position as a religion writer regularly for the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times itself is an interesting subculture to observe from from outside. I, I still believe it's the most influential paper uh, on the planet, actually. But uh, I, I mean, and, and Yale University, by the way, very interesting place. You know, the yeah. the university where the Divinity School has had the most uh, uh, tenuous hold as a place within the uh, the university's life for for decades now. So, I mean, something's happening. And and, and if secularization is not the word for it, then what is? That's a really <laughs> that's a great question. I think that um, you know, let me let me think about my students for a moment. Let me reflect on them. Uh, I teach, I've taught everyone from freshmen to master's and doctoral students over the last few years at Boston College, uh, where I was a visiting professor last year at Yale, where I'm back to teaching this fall. And um, I think that what I'm seeing from the students uh, is a kind of uh, admirable earnestness um, coupled with perhaps a severance from these old traditions. So let me give you an example, right? I almost never encounter somebody who, for example, identifies as a Methodist because uh, her mom and her mom's parents identified as Methodist or Baptist or Catholic. You could insert any religion there. Jews would be a little bit different. Mormons would be a little bit different. Those, those are slightly you know, tighter knit and, and they have slightly better retention. But if you look at most Protestant churches, in fact, even if you look at Roman Catholicism, you're encountering fewer and fewer people who seem to think that what their parents did and what their grandparents did are the appropriate guideposts for what they ought to do. And that's not just in religion. It's also in, for example, where should they settle? Where should they live? I mean, very few of my students think to themselves, well, I'm from Denver. My people have been from Denver for 100 years. We were one of the founding families of Denver. I'll go back to Denver. You know, yeah. instead, everyone kind of wants to go to Washington, New York, or San Francisco. Now, some and, years ago... Sorry? Yeah, I was going to say, some years ago, you wrote on Stanley Hauerwas, and, and you pointed out that central to his understanding is, is the fact that uh, the endurance of, uh, of certain uh, truths and values requires the endurance of a community and, uh, and of traditions. We've had a conversation on this program with him, by the way. Uh, do, do you accept that, uh, and, and do you think that's a part of the problem now? I do. I think Stanley's right about that. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're helping me think toward this, because as I said, I, I tend not to think in, in big theories. But I do think that one of the central questions, and I've written a little bit about this, um, is this question of communalism. I mean, however you want to construe it. Again, I, sometimes I call it localism. Sometimes I call it, um, you know, I think it's tied to persistence across generations. And I'm very interested in neighborhoods, for example, and their stability. And I think that in some ways, one of the tensions I see with young people whom I work with, and this is a tension present in their spiritual life, in their professional life, in their familial life, is how much are they going to listen to um, you know, certain echoes and whispers from their past, and how much are they just going to entirely strike out on their own, which often means just, you know, chaining themselves to some sort of corporate life, just I'll go where my company sends me, or I'll go where the money is. And I think that... Um, you know, what you, the column I wrote this past weekend for, for the Times about Methodist ministers who are starting home churches with an environmental flavor, you know, who are saying we're not going to buy a building, but instead we're going to bake bread, sell it at the farmer's market, invite people over to dinner at the parsonage or at wherever the, the apartment the minister's renting. That kind of hyper-localism, I think, is, is where a lot of young people um, may gravitate towards. But again, I think that's a, that's a, there's a real cleft there between the ones who see the value in that and the ones who are just like, you know, atomized, you know, 
gnats kind yeah. of flying about looking for the brightest light, whether it be money or success. This conversation with Mark Oppenheimer is particularly interesting to me because you're talking to a reporter who's actually more accustomed to asking the questions rather than answering them. And yet, he's been considering these questions for a very long time. Back in 2003, he published a book entitled Knocking on Heaven's Door, American Religion in the Age of Counterculture, in which he made the very interesting argument that the counterculture of the 1960s didn't so much lead people to leave religion as it transformed religion. The counterculture basically moved into the church, into synagogues, and into American religious life. But a reporter and observer of Mark Oppenheimer's stature is someone who actually watches things as they're happening and has a very keen understanding of what's interesting. Now, there's a distinction sometimes between what's interesting and what's important, but from a Christian worldview perspective, what's important should be interesting. And that's what makes a conversation like this really valuable. The most interesting of your articles in recent days to me is the one on uh, the new nuns. That is, uh, mm. in, in this case, not the N-O-N-E-S of the Pew study right. in terms of no <laughs> religious affiliation, none of the above. Right. But rather, uh, we're talking about Catholic nuns. And you, you write about uh, an order of Catholic nuns in which you have uh, young millennial women who are entering, and uh, and they are very traditionalist in terms of their Roman Catholic beliefs, and they've, they've gone back to wearing the habit, the very things that uh, a generation of nuns before them, at least in, in North America, uh, tried to uh, to set aside. And, and so what, what, as an outsider, did you see as, as salient there? You know, I just got a tip uh, from somebody uh, in the Roman Catholic world, somebody I was talking to for another piece I was doing. Uh, we had a great conversation, and one of the things I always say to people before I get off the phone or before I take my leave is, Wh- whom else should I talk to? What else should I write about? And she had said, you should really talk to the Sisters of Life. Uh, so this was something I was tipped off to. And I just was intrigued because obviously abortion isn't going away as a topic in the news. The, the culture war around that is, is, if anything, heating up. And um, here's, I didn't even know that, you know, 80 miles from me was the headquarters of an order of nuns specifically started by Cardinal O'Connor with uh, the culture of life and, and, quite frankly, you know, fighting abortion um, as, as its focus. So to me, it was, it was interesting that they'd flown under the radar so successfully, that here they are. They are the anti-abortion nuns. They wouldn't put it that way, but they are. And yet people didn't seem to know that much about them. What's more, they're operating right there in Manhattan. I mean, they have, they have several houses, convents right on, you know, in, in Midtown. So um, to me, it was just an underreported story, I guess I would say, uh, more than anything. But look, they very much fit into what we're talking about. You know, these are women who have sought out a kind of st- stability, a kind of continuity, uh, of the renunciation of materialism. Um, and by the way, I would, I guess another word that we'd want to inject here is authenticity. You know, the, the, I think that, I don't think, for example, you're going to be seeing many more new megachurch starts with the big, you know, TV screens and the kind of formula, the, the, the Willow Creek formula that's been copied so many times. I think we're past the point where people find that authentic, and I think that if they think they're being sold something um, that's been market tested, that's a big turnoff. And I think, you know, you're seeing that in, in the nun's lifestyle as well. Yeah, we're also seeing it in a change in terms of the frame uh, through which uh, well, young evangelical ministers are looking. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're not talking about the megachurch as a model, uh, uh, even though many of them actually grew up in it. However, the majority of our students, by the way, 
and uh, we'll, we'll have almost 5,000 students this year. The majority of them did not come out of really large churches. That's a, that's a very interesting fact, I, I find, uh, in and of itself. But, but we are looking at, at coping mechanisms in the light of modernity, and, uh, yeah. and I'll put it that way. And that's why, as an evangelical and ardent evangelical Protestant, uh, I read that article on the nuns, and I thought, you know, the, I, I can see analogies in, in terms of the uh, the young people who are on uh, the campus I'm honored to lead. I can see the same kind of countercultural identity, but my students are they they they, they look like uh, well they they're not wearing obviously uh, even the women <laughs> students are not wearing habits, and uh, you know you, you would not pick out the 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 young seminary students on on our campus or in the college. You, you wouldn't pick them out in the neighborhood as distinctive in dress or, uh, or, or, or uh, any kind of marker like that, you have written a great deal on groups that do. And uh, yeah. I, I find that really interesting. Well, and, you know, this, I think, look, I wrote this piece for Time Magazine. Obviously, you took something from it, and, and other people uh, less temperate than you also were troubled by it. I was a little disappointed, I guess, because I think of myself as trying to prompt real seeking and searching for ideas. I'm not a policy guy. I've never written a piece of legislation. I don't run for office. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in ideas. I was a little disappointed that nobody was intrigued by the question, the counterfactual that I thought I was posing, which was, what would the world look like if religious institutions couldn't afford the buildings that they have? You know, what would it look like if all of a sudden it became cheaper to, you know, rent apartments or have church at home or gather in fields and meadows if you're in a nice climate. And, you know, I don't believe that if all of a sudden the tax liability of, of churches and synagogues went up four or five, you know, if all of a sudden their bottom line was hit by four or five percent in property taxes, or if their donations went down by 10 percent because uh, people couldn't deduct anymore, I don't believe they'd go away. I think they'd adapt. And nobody seemed to want to ask, well, how, how would we adapt? Well, but, I, I, you know, the Christian church, for example, not to mention, I'm, I'm speaking to you, the experience of Judaism has, has proved the point that adaptability is, uh, is amazingly uh, pervasive and adaptability under urgent situations happens, to put it bluntly. But, uh, but not without some horrifying losses, and, uh, and, and, and that would be my main concern. And I, I think the, the question you ask deserves to be answered but it would take a long conversation to document what those losses would actually look like. It would mean that if you get a church larger than a house, you couldn't have a church. I mean, this gets you right back to the situation of Romans in the late Roman Empire, where the question was, you know, once we can't meet in a house, where do we meet? Uh, sure. And, but I also think that the response to my article showed a real lack of, of faith in the people in the pews, because, of course, it's not like anyone's, uh, you know, if someone's giving $10,000 and they write it off their taxes, and all of a sudden they couldn't write it off anymore, the assumption everyone was making was, well, they'd stop giving or they'd cut their donation, you know, proportionately. Well, maybe they wouldn't. Yeah, and and uh, let the record show you took us back to the tax exempt issue. I was doing my best not to. So, but I but I, I'm happy. I understand, to go but back. I I really it was so disappointing because a nobody read the piece to the end, and number two, nobody thought how great of him to raise an interesting question, or at least how exciting it could be to engage this. Right. Instead, there was this kind of doubling down on like they're coming from mine. Well, you know, that's a fair criticism, I think, in terms of the fact we do tend to read out of immediate self-interest. And uh, I, I, I think that's probably a good admission for any honest reader to make in, in reading anything. But I don't think our concerns were limited to that uh, 
to, to that self-interest. Uh, I, I do think there are far larger issues here. And this is a conversation to be engaged. And uh, if there's a willingness to uh, engage the conversation, I don't think it's going to come from our circles. Uh, because, uh, you know, we, we are, after all, you're talking to Southern Baptist here. Uh, we, we can adapt to just about anything uh, because we began with very little. And, uh, and and so, you know, the reason why Baptists and Methodists, by the way, grew so much on the American frontier is because we didn't have to have permission. We didn't have to have a, an externally uh, a granted authority. We didn't even have to have a building. So we can, we can do that again if we have to. But I, I do want to calculate and document the loss. Well, understood. But, I mean, it would, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be admirable if, if some of you who are engaged in research, if some of your sociologists said, well, you know, how much are we inflicting on, in, in higher taxes on other people because of the exemptions we're taking? I think those are fair questions from a public policy perspective, and, and, I, and I don't, I don't could, fear that consideration. And I, you could write I, into that the assumption. You could build in questions about, well, how much does our work give back to the public in non-tangible or hard-to-quantify ways. You could do that. And as far as I can tell, nobody cares. Nobody wants to do that work. Well, that's interesting. And uh, we'll see if uh, someone listening to this program decides to take that up as a challenge. And uh, I, I do think it would require a, 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 a great – it would require a team of, uh, of scholars and experts and, and technicians trill, uh, who are trained in economics and – <laughs> All kinds of different things because I, I mean I just just I don't think either one of us uh, in this conversation is really up to that particular consideration. But uh, but asking questions is a is a part of the job too. If I may, I'd like to to get to something else that absolutely. You know, I, I, there can't be that many evangelicals who've read your book on the bar mitzvah, but uh, I, I I am one of those. You read my book on the, oh, thank you, Al. Yeah, absolutely. No, I find it fascinating. I, I grew up a, a, in a, in a community with a, a large Jewish population, and uh, they had bar mitzvahs. Where'd you grow and, up? And I didn't at this point in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, it was a very different uh, experience for me. But it gets to larger issues. By the way, I I love how you explain the bar mitzvah in terms of its historical background and uh, the situation where just to have the requirements of prayer, you had to decide when a boy was a man and uh, and and how he how and when exactly he would count, and, and how that gets translated into uh, modern America and modern American Judaism with the the spectacles that have become some bar mitzvahs and now uh, bat mitzvahs. But, mm-hmm. you, you know, we, we all, in our own way, uh, as, uh, as religious traditions, have a way of getting to this point, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the musical spectacular in a megachurch on the 4th of July or you're talking about uh, the spectacular of the, uh, of the bar mitzvah. But, but you wrote that book, and, and it was fascinating to me. But what does it tell you about the transformation of religious forms over time uh, in consumerist Hypermodern oh, America. It, it, you know, two things. Number one, uh, money uh, is good for a religion right up into the point where it's really bad for a religion. And, of course, this is true of uh, what money does to human beings, which is it's, it's really, really bad for us to have too little of it. Poverty is not um, ennobling. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. I don't recommend it. Um, but uh, having too much money, um, you know, is, is in some ways an almost as great danger. Um, and, uh, you know, Jews are one of the wealthiest ethnic groups in America. I think, I actually think we're up there with Mormons and Greeks, Greek Americans, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, but you know, uh, Americans are rich. Uh, it, all, we're all, we're all rich relative to what some people in this world have to endure. And, uh, so money that we should be spending on, on education or helping the poor or just doing outreach, um, uh, we're not, we're spending in other ways. 
But the second thing that it taught me was that nevertheless, really, really good people manage to make uh, spiritually and religiously meaningful experience even out of some very consumerist forms. So, um, you know, there are people, and, and some of my friends in, sec- in the secular world don't believe this, but there are people for whom the megachurch worship experience is profoundly moving. Um, it's hard for me to see how, but I'm aware as a journalist walking in, you know, interviewing hundreds of people over the years, that for some people it's really moving and it's really transformative, and, yeah. it's in, and it saves their lives. Well, I also want to point out that uh, authenticity means different things to different right. people. And right. uh, I, I can tell you that uh, a good many of those pastors of those very large churches, indeed the megachurch model, are friends of mine. And I know them to be incredibly authentic in terms of their ministry and in terms of their vision. And the people who are in those churches are also uh, experiencing uh, authentic Christianity. It's, 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 you know, the way I tell people is there's some people who, uh, who in, in a given situation would gravitate towards a small college and they need the, they need the small right. community of small college. There are others who want to go to the University of Michigan. That is not a question of authenticity. It, it is a question of opportunity and of, uh, of one's own understanding of, of, of the community in which one fits well. No, that's right. And each, each model brings with it its own virtues and its own vices. I mean, a, a, you know, my wife went to a college without fraternities and sororities, and guess what? It didn't have uh, the worst aspects of fraternity and sorority culture. Um, on the other hand, really, really small communities can be more gossipy, and they can make it harder to carve out a, a sphere of privacy. Everyone's, you know, in a small house church, everyone's in your business in a way that they're not at a megachurch. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I agree. And, and you know, I've, I've talked to people who had uh, really over-the-top, materialistic, crass bar or bat mitzvahs for whom it was a, a tremendously transformative experience. So I try not to judge, um, but I do think that we always have to be on guard against the blandishments of, of money. Um, and I think, um, you know... Uh, I think you're again, on solid you know, scriptural ground there, Mark. I, 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 I think uh, it, to disagree with uh, with with uh, you at that point is to disagree with the prophets and with Jesus. And um, so I <laughs> hey, think that's I, a very safe ground to be on. Can I ask you a, a New Testament question? Absolutely. So I would have thought, and this this could show my ignorance of your tradition, that the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's would be proof text number one for Christians paying, uh, n- not asking for tax exemption. Yeah, well, it is proof text number one exactly for why Christians as citizens should not ask for a tax exemption as Christians, uh, but because we, we have to render under Caesar what is Caesar's. The question is whether Caesar has the right to lay claim upon a, a spiritual institution. And so that, that's where, because remember that, that uh, what Jesus said was twofold, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and under God that which is God's. And uh, the most important thing Jesus was clearly saying there was that Caesar put his image on the coin and let him have it. He put uh, God right. put his image on you. He can't have your soul. And uh, th- so that's not to say that that uh, that Christians can't be a part of uh, an Erastian church, such as the Church of England, uh, at, at, without spiritual compromise in terms of the governmental relation and the tax mm-hmm. relation. You know, Germany has tax-supported churches, uh, including mm-hmm. some evangelical churches. So I'm not saying mm-hmm. that the, the political and economic facts are always going to be the same in terms of faithfulness. But I am going to argue that, that render under Caesar does not mean that Caesar has a right to, uh, to snuff out the life of uh, a church hanging on by the skin of its teeth in Manhattan. Now, one conservative, um, uh, quite conservative, someone you've no doubt heard of, he's one of the great heroes of conservative law professors, um, 
uh, whom I asked about this question, someone who's very, very interested in the separation of church and state in a way that is very pleasing to conservative Christians, pointed out that, of course, if you followed his own logic or, or the logic that a lot of people, a lot of conservatives brought to bear on me to its conclusion, you wouldn't just get to write off your deduction and get, in other words, to recoup 20 or 30 percent of it. You'd get it all back. Um, but the fact that you don't get it all back means that, of course, the government does uh, you know, there still is government money circulating to that. They still are entwined. I think in terms of a fungible economy, there is no way to get away from that fact. I don't I don't I, I can't imagine an economic set of conditions in which uh, that there isn't uh, some level of intertwining once you have uh, the complicated economy we have now. And the tax laws that, uh, frankly, are, are pieced together as they come together. And uh, I, I have no way of, of figuring how we can get out of that issue in a short conversation. I'd like to shift, if you'll allow me, to one yeah. other question uh, before we close. And that is, OK, so you're talking to uh, an evangelical Christian and uh, you're talking from uh, your own background. What in the world do we make of the phenomenon of the Pope with the Pope's visit as we're talking uh, right before us on the calendar? What does it look like from uh, the vantage point of the New York Times when you're looking at the uh, Francis well, I, phenomenon? You know, I, I have no involvement in the Pope coverage at all. And we have, you know, like every organization, we have our own, you know, Popeologists, and we have people who you know, speak Italian, people who are better versed in Catholicism. So I can speak for myself. I can say that I've... Um, you know, papal visits always excite the masses, and I think that sometimes they end up doing more than that. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm not mista- mistaken, John Paul II made some visits to, you know, historically communist countries Absolutely. that were really transformative for those places and really, you know, gave people resolve to oppose those, those uh, oppressive governments and, and really, you know, helped people change their, change their lives, change by changing their countries. Um, whenever, you know, the, a pope visits the United States or Australia or Canada, <laughs> you know, uh, I always think it's more of a media event than it is an actual, um, uh, you know, than it is an actual opportunity for, for change. I don't, I don't think it leaves behind that much of a legacy. Um, I do sometimes speak to nuns or priests who will say, it was when I saw the pope that I realized I had to change my life. Not necessarily this pope, but, but other popes. Um, but I think that the mass spectacle um, doesn't matter much in this case. I don't. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, I, I think probably. So I think the big question people are asking, and as an evangelical Protestant, I've got a lot invested in this question. You know, not, not to mention the the question of the papacy itself. But is, is it, he going to return people to the church? Well, no. no I think the bigger question is uh, is Pope Francis, the agent of liberal change within the church, and uh, because I think what's happened is is that uh, the, the the expectation has been largely set by Pope Francis himself that uh, that that there's some uh, there's some major change taking place, right? Uh, and, and eventually, people are going to have to ask hard questions, and and I think it's be fascinating to see the secular press do this, and and that is, is there any real change here? And uh, I'm going to be I mean, watching that coverage very carefully. I think that one thing that this pope wants to do, this is my own. You know, my own uh, uh, bystanding uh, armchair thinking is that he wants to iron out some hypocrisies, right? So, if in fact you have um, people taking communion, who everyone, you know, who people people who are living in sin, people who are divorced, people who are, you know, have not confessed lately, whatever, 
Um, but everyone knows that essentially there's a gentleman's agreement that you let people take communion, and that's a way to keep them in the church. Well, then I think this pope would say, okay, let's let's be honest about that, and let's not interrogate people um, and and decide who's in and who's out in terms of communion. I think that's what he was doing this morning uh, when, when he's talking about speeding up the or smoothing out the annulment process. If people are going to get annulments, and if the church is going to grant them pretty freely as it does then let's not torture people by having automatic appeals and having extended trials, and ha- right? I mean, I think he's saying if we're a church that freely gives out annulments, then we're a church that freely gives out annulments. It's going to and- be very interesting to watch, but the big issue for me as an evangelical Protestant is the fact that there are going to be inescapable theological issues that millions and millions of Americans are going to have to think about to some extent and uh, may have to think about more deeply than they are prepared in terms of what happens with the Pope's Well, visit. like what? Well, I, I, th- I think, for instance, evangelicals looking at the papacy, uh, who, who may not really have any knowledge of the Roman Catholic Church, but are going to be watching a sacramental system of theology played out in terms of these public masses, I think it's going to lead to a lot of questions. And, and, and I'm not sure the secular media, by and large, and you're the exception to this, I'm not saying that just because I'm talking with you, but most secular reporters actually, by their own admission, and I end up talking to a lot of them, don't know a whole lot about theological issues uh, uh, in general. And it's, right. it's going to be a very interesting process because you can't have a papal visit like this with all the issues swirling around it without asking some pretty big theological questions. Well, and of course, you know, Roman Catholicism represents for a lot of people um, that that hope for a unified church, right, for one, uh, you know, one city of man across the the world with no divisions. Um, and, and there's no way that any Protestant denomination can ever represent that. Um, so I think for a lot of people, the the public performance of Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholic ritual is very inspiring in that way. It doesn't mean that they run out and, and, you know, begin studying to become Roman Catholics, but I think that it does kind of remind them that the ultimate goal is the sort of reconciliation of all of these different factions into one into one humanity. Um, it, well, big issues, and I think that's going to be the fascinating thing to watch to see, uh, just, just how the larger culture actually deals with or fails to deal with those uh, theological issues. Mm-hmm. Mark, it, it's been fascinating. We started with tax exemption, ended <laughs> on the Pope of Stanley Howard Watson, Bar Mitzvahs in between. This is, uh, this is the most interesting conversation in the range of issues I've had in a very long time. And oh, I, I thank, thank you. you for your willingness to engage in this conversation. Oh, well, listen, will you come on, will you come on my podcast on Unorthodox, which Absolutely. I do with Tablet Magazine? Absolutely. I'd be honored okay, to do so. And uh, you, you've got my number. Anytime you need me, you just give a call. Every week we have a guest Gentile of the week. You'll be, you'll be on one of these weeks. I would be, I would be <laughs> happily honored to be so. Okay, and great. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. All right. Thanks so much. Those of us who consume a great deal of the media, and in particular, read newspapers such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, other leading national and international papers, we often tend to think of those periodicals, those major media outlets, as institutions, which of course they are, and in most cases, major corporations. But they're actually being produced by, written by, and edited by very real human beings. And those reporters and editors are very much involved in shaping the way we think, noticing what is important, looking at what's interesting, and bringing analysis that eventually gets filtered down throughout much of the major culture around us. When I say that the New York Times is, by most measures, the most influential newspaper in the world, I'm not paying the New York Times a compliment. I'm simply stating an analytical judgment. 
There are other newspapers that also have vast influence. Most importantly, I would argue, the Wall Street Journal, joined by the Financial Times, the Washington Post, and a few other newspapers in America. But the New York Times plays a very distinctive role simply because of the prominence of New York City in the production of culture and because of the venerable influence of the New York Times over decades, and especially by the midpoint of the 20th century and now into the 21st. Anyone interested in worldview and cultural analysis has to look at a media property like the New York Times with tremendous interest, because what happens in the New York Times becomes filtered down in terms of other major media. And what makes a newspaper like the New York Times rather unique is the depth of its repertorial and editorial staff. There is someone at the New York Times who knows something about just about everything, and that's what gives that newspaper such credibility. And yet, in an age I genuinely believe is increasingly secularized to this respect, fewer and fewer people at a place like the New York Times are expected to know much about theology or much about religion in general. And that's what makes a conversation with Mark Oppenheimer so interesting, because it's interesting to see what he finds interesting. And it's also very important from a worldview perspective to understand as best we can how others see us. And when it comes to the New York Times, evangelical Christians are one of those groups that are seen somewhat at a distance, certainly in terms of the major worldview that shapes that newspaper and the larger cultural industry there in New York and beyond. This was a different kind of conversation for thinking in public, not so much focused on an author and a book, but rather focused on the work of one reporter. And the catalyst for this, undeniably, was the article he wrote right on the heels of the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision in which he called for the elimination of tax exemption for religious and other nonprofit institutions. The fact that he wrote that article was very instructive. The fact that he wrote it and that he wrote that article at that time. And that in this case, Time Magazine ran the article and ran it very prominently on its website. Just as Americans are coming to terms with the fact that the Supreme Court had just legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. This was a unique conversation in that it raised more issues than we could possibly trace out and follow. And it also points to a truth we come back to time and time again, and that is this. Even in this age that is increasingly secular in so many ways and proudly secular in so many dimensions and in so many communities, the reality is that this conversation, the reality is that this conversation demonstrates that theology nonetheless is always there right behind the headlines. A secular age, as it turns out in this respect, really isn't so secular after all, and the Christian worldview explains why it really can never be as secular as it claims and perhaps even intends to be. The New York Times rather regularly runs this beliefs column. That's the label on the column. But in reality, belief is behind virtually every story that is ever published in that magazine, and it always will be. And finally, in our culture, journalism matters, especially when that journalism comes from some of the most elite and influential sources and media platforms in the world. That's one of the reasons why I enjoyed this conversation with Mark Oppenheimer. I hope you did, too. Thanks again for listening to Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to spts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Bowler.